0: I'm Caleb Zachran,
1: Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Satinsky, Independent Researcher and Author, Business Consultant and Associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. We're discussing his book, Creating the Post-Soviet Russian Market Economy Through American Eyes. Daniel, who participated in business dealings in both the Soviet Union and Russia until 2014, sought to capture the period of time when Americans and Russians collaborated to build a new economic system. For this project, Daniel interviewed 106 people in order to recreate the experience of this pivotal historic moment. A truly unique book, creating the post-Soviet Russian market economy is a central background for the present moment. Daniel,
0: thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. It was a great opportunity. I'm glad to be here.
1: Of course. you know th- th- This book really is so fascinating, especially given how Russia is in the news every single day. And, you know, myself, like many people, just don't know a lot about the period that you write about. Um I think that that it's, you know, it, w- whatever it is, Russian when you learn Russian history in school, which is my experience, you learn about the Russian Revolution, you know, you learn about Peter the Great. Um, but, you know, this sort of post Soviet period is is a mystery to me. Um so I, I found it just just fascinating to to learn about it. I'm really excited to to talk to you today about it. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: Great. I will do that. Um I'm I'm going to start where with my professional life where I was uh, uh, trained as a lawyer. I went to Northeastern University Law School. I worked as a lawyer for 10 years, and I found I was bored. I was um, really more interested in international relations than I was in being a lawyer. Um, I am a a product of the Cold War, Vietnam War generation. And in 1984, uh, I received a a mailing from Intourist, which was the Soviet uh, tourist agency, about a study tour to the Soviet Union for lawyers. And so I thought, oh, wow, that's I would like to see this country that I've... uh, read so much about it, it's been our historic adversary, and I want to know what it looks like. So I went with a friend, we went on a 10 day trip, Um, was fascinating, Uh, I learned a lot, and I came away with a lot more curiosity. So by 1988, I decided to make a career change. I went to the Fletcher School uh, for Law and Diplomacy, of law and diplomacy and got a two-year master's started studying Russian and right before I graduated I got a, a, a job working for a joint venture there's still Soviet times that was importing rare earth oxides from the Soviet Union and selling them in the U.S. and that started me off on a business career that lasted uh up until 2014 It included participation in joint ventures it included uh being uh, a part of business organizations it was uh, market entry for russians into the u.s market market entry for americans into the russian market a whole variety of things but i also began to write about uh, russia partly because it was very hard to get people to listen Um, to what you have to say about Russia because everyone thought they knew everything by watching the TV. And I always was frustrated that they didn't. So it drove me to kind of write. So this book is a continuation of a process for myself that began in 2014 of trying to capture my experience of what Russia was like and Russians we're like, um that, you know, is part of my life, but without it being a memoir. So I wanted to represent what many people like myself went through and how we saw the country and how we experienced it. So the first book was really about Russians who came to the U.S. It's called Hammer and Silicon. It was about Soviet ex-Soviet emigres in the high-tech industry in the U.S. I was co-author with two professors from uh, Northeastern University, Dan McCarthy and Sheila Puffer. And this book, the current book, is kind of flips the story. It's about Americans who went to Russia and what was their impact on that country and what was that country's impact on them. So that's really the basis uh, for the book. You address at the beginning of the book some
1: analyses of the end of the Soviet Union. I think this is just useful for listeners, just for framing, to just know who's come before you and who you're responding to. So you look at analyses by Zbigniew Brzezinski and Fiona Hill and Angela Stent's recent uh, recent book. And you know, what do you make of these interpretations? What are some of the standard theories or ideas
0: about the end of the Soviet Union? Yeah. So first of all, um, I have enormous respect for all of them. They're all uh, eminent uh, analysts, Uh, but like any analyst, they are bound by their worldview and their own experience. Brzezinski, uh, in particular, and I want to be very specific about what I say about their views in the book, because I'm not criticizing them as people or as individuals or broadly as to what they said, but Brzezinski wrote in Foreign Affairs, in uh, at the early days of the collapse of the Soviet Union, that that Russia was now uh, in receivership to the West, that it it was that it, we had to teach them how to reorganize their economy. And to me, this is a uh, fallacy of understanding, of what they what happened, or what they were doing, or how they perceived things, and how things have turned out since then, and has led to um, you know mistakes. I think it's symbolic of a kind of an attitude of America that Americans took towards uh, Russia in this post-Soviet uh, period. So that's the first thing uh, with um, Angela Stent and Fiona Hill. The thing that I focused on was they wrote an important article in foreign affairs again, which focused uh itself on a historical pattern in Russia when where Russia wants to modernize, it opens itself up to Western experts, imports Western expertise, utilizes that, assimilates it, and uses that as the way it modernizes. This is the same process that happened at the end of the Soviet Union and which many of the Americans we that are in my book uh, participated in, probably not knowing it or not seeing it that way. But in any event, Stent and Hill say that that window started to close in 2014. My quarrel with them is that I think that's uh, wrong, that the window began to close probably in 1998 or 1999 and gradually closed um, you, you know in many extent, many ways through the early 2000s. Um, so it's really a timing question rather than the focus that they uh, made on this historical pattern in Russian history around modernization. So
1: as I mentioned at the at the outset, this book is constructed uh, through a series of interviews that you conducted, 106 in total. Um, you don't you know you don't end up naming every single person in the book, but you do name 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 many of them around 65 or 66. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, and I just wonder if you talk a little bit about just high level. I'm sure you'll you'll drill down on certain individuals, but high level, how did you go about finding
0: these subjects? you know who were these people that you ended up talking to? Okay, so this book, as I said, is a, it, it relates to my own experience um, without it being a memoir. So these are people uh, who I started with were people I knew. I knew them through business activities. I knew them through the U.S.-Russia Business Council. I knew them through AmCham, the American Chamber of Commerce in Russia. I knew them through the U.S.-Russia Chamber of Commerce of New England, which... I was the director of for some number of years. And I originally thought, well, I'm gonna interview 25 or 30 people, that's a lot. It'll give me enough information to sort of, you know, give a picture of the period. And as I started, uh, many of them said, no, wait a minute, there's another person you should speak to. And it became a whole network of people who, uh, led me from one to another. Uh, and certain people were really uh, critical in that. There's um, a guy named Bernie Sucher, who was uh, a really important and interesting entrepreneur in Russia in this period and was worked at Troika Dialogue Bank and was one of the founders of the Starlight Diner and uh, one of the first gyms in Russia, a real varied entrepreneur, knew lots of people, introduced me to many of them, helped me to reach people who I otherwise couldn't have reached. Um, There was another guy named Fred Berliner who was uh, responsible for setting up the first stock exchange uh, in Russia, Uh, and he was an enormously respected guy in the financial industry. So, he got me a lot of contacts, and um, there were there were others. Uh, Chris King, another person who was uh, a staff member at the AmCham in the late '90s, who uh, was opened the door to to other people. So it was a whole network marketing, if you will, um, outreach that led me to all these people. And I really regret that I couldn't include all of them. Um, they all had really uh, interesting and varied experiences in different uh, sectors of the economy in uh, in Russia. Could you just discuss a little bit and explain for our listeners about the
1: citizen diplomacy movement and just the growing contact between Americans and Russians prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union?
0: Yeah, this is a very important precursor to what happened in the 90s. In the 1980s, uh, Many Americans were afraid that we were going to exchange, a, a, have a nuclear nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, and uh, there was uh, still the remnants of a peace movement from the uh, anti-Vietnam War period, and there were kind of remnants of the counterculture movement that took the lead in 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 trying to find a way to diffuse tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And this was citizen diplomacy because it was not done by governments. This was done by private individuals and organizations trying to find um, partners and ways of communicating with people in the Soviet Union. And the really important role was played by the Esalen Institute in California which was founded to explore human potential broadly. And uh, they were researching things like uh, telepathy and auras and things that many Americans would consider fringe and kind of, you know, that, kind of out there a bit. Um, they discovered that the Soviet Union was also researching the same things. So they sent a young researcher, Jim Hickman, to Belize, Georgia, to a conference on auras, uh, human aura, which is an energy field, that, or, or at least a theory of an energy field that surrounds people. So Hickman made contacts with uh, Soviet researchers and convinced Eslan to start a program of a Soviet-American exchange. And so they began to exchange on this fairly esoteric topics, but the exchange then grew into something much, much larger. So uh, in 1982, Steve Wozniak, who was uh, one of the Apple founders, was funding a rock and roll concert, the Us Festival. And some of the people involved were brainstorming and thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could get uh, Soviet participation in this? And the new technology of uh, satellite uh satellite communications was developed and they thought yeah we'll we'll get a satellite bridge between the festival and moscow and so hickman was traveling to russia and anyway for another purpose he had with him an American astronaut Rust, rusty schweikert and they were there to set up a, an association of cosmonauts and astronauts he convinced the Soviet authorities that this was a good idea um and they set up the first uh satellite link with the us festival so there were all these kids in a stadium with a big screen around the stadium and all of a sudden there's a picture of um Amer- of Russians in Moscow in a studio throwing around beach balls and with uh, rock and roll musicians there uh, Bill Graham, who was producing the festival and who was one of a famous rock and roll uh, producer in San Francisco, his family was Hungarian in background. He looked at this. He said, this is propaganda and uh, there aren't really in Moscow. That can't possibly be there. And Wa- they're in Washington. And this is just propaganda. And he pulled the plug. And so after 15 minutes, this transmission ended. The people in California called Hickman in Moscow and said, you know, this, the, he, he pulled the plug. What do we do? Hickman says, I'm not telling the Russians. They think we're still broadcasting. And so they went on with it. But that then got repeated, and it built into a series of these exchanges um, that took place from 1982 through 1987. And it built on each other out of this great curiosity between Americans and Russians and the fear of nuclear exchange um, and the feeling that if we got to know each other, then we wouldn't want to kill each other. And this was kind of the theory behind this citizen diplomacy, which morphed into actual physical exchanges, um, and it reached a point where Peter Jennings, who was the moderator on ABC uh, Nightline News, had members of the Supreme Soviet and members of the U.S. Congress speaking to each other via satellite link on issues of the day, and I can't imagine anything like that taking place in this day and age. Um, So these built ties between the two countries, between individuals um, that led to the very first joint ventures between Russians and Americans. Um, There was a a restaurant, an American restaurant that opened in Moscow called Trenmos that was an outgrowth of the Trenton Moscow sister city uh, arrangement and uh, served American-style food. There was a Dialogue, which was a big, multifaceted uh, trade organization. Uh, there was Perestroika, which was the first commercial real estate uh, joint venture. All these things came out of this citizen exchange. On the American side, it was peace through understanding. On the Russian side, it seems to me it was more about modernization, How do we get out of the stagnation of this late Soviet period? How do we find access to technology and people who can change our society? So there were different goals, but joint activities, uh, which led then to contacts which mushroomed in the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and and leading just into that, could you describe a little bit what the dissolution of the Soviet
1: Union was like, specifically from just the the American perspective, or or you know, you know, the role that Americans helped to play to support the transition away from the Soviet Union?
0: Yeah, I, I think the the dissolution of, of the Soviet Union was a surprise. Um, I don't think that even though everyone had every American expert had predicted that the Soviet Union would fail, when it did nobody really believed it and could have foreseen the way it did um it's it's interesting um to try and go back to that period because it was a very uh from the russian side it was a very top down kind of uh um event i mean uh yeltsin met in a hunting lodge in uh, Belarus with leaders from Belarus and Ukraine, and they just agreed to disband the Soviet Union. And for whatever reason, Gorbachev did not oppose them. The KGB didn't stop them. The military went along with it. And so the Russian people were disoriented, um, disorganized, uh, whole institutions suddenly were no longer functioning, uh, and the Yeltsin team took over, looking to the U.S. for as much support as they could possibly get, and the U.S. Uh, stepped in and did provide a lot of support. I don't. I think we will. We would have to look at what the uh, impact would be, and that's partly what the book is about but there are, it was a broad kind of support all the way from um food there was you know uh, uh chicken legs that were sent as su- surplus food that was sent to the soviet people because their distribution system was collapsed that were referred to as bush legs because they came under president bush um and the pre- and uh, secretary Seth baker went to the uh went to russia and promised aid they came back to washington and there was no organization set up to do anything so they called on the peace corps which had been set up to send american volunteers around the world and they set up a program to bring business people to russia to help the transition to a market economy and so in the book i interviewed a number of the people who went and this original cadre of, um, I think it was 150 uh, in uh, the lower Volga and 50 in Vladivostok um, in the Far East, who were, as one of them described, the shock troops of capitalism. Uh, interesting experiences that all of them had. And then later, the USAID, um, USDA, Department of Defense all kicked in with a huge number of programs. There were over 200 different aid programs usaid alone um spent billions of dollars supporting uh the yeltsin uh, administration um they they spent between 1990 and 1994 3.5 billion dollars supporting programs and another 10 billion dollars in credits um and the the size of this was really not well-appreciated, I think, in the U.S., but it was very chaotic. Uh, you know, even to catalog what these programs were was difficult because uh, they were all over the place. Every agency wanted a piece of the action. And the other thing to understand about this is that the this money was spent— uh, did not go to russians it went to americans who were consultants or business people or of various other program administrators who were developing programs that were all designed to support a transition to a market economy um in russia and as far as this transition was concerned this you know this period of of
1: privatization you know what what was privatization like and and you know, I sort of based on your what you're yeah. saying, clearly Americans did play a significant role. So, you know, how much of a role really did Americans play? And uh, you know, what were some of the stories that you heard from the from the participants uh in the interview series as far as this period? Okay.
0: So this was uh this is really a critical point. This is uh the main change that took place. Uh that is a replacement of state property in a planned economy with private uh, property and a russian style market economy and you can't overestimate the magnitude of this change to go from all state property to uh, privatized individual property and this was the strategy of the yeltsin uh, administration to prevent the return of socialism and it was the people around Yeltsin saw this as the critical uh policy move to make to uh, put an end to socialism in Russia so uh Chubais at that period referred to them as kamikazes they were suicide pilots uh that knew they would they didn't have much time to get privatization done, and they were determined to push through knowing that, or at least believing at that time, that it would lead to uh, pushback and difficulties from themselves personally later on. But this was what they wanted to do. So I'm I'm emphasizing that it was a Russian initiative because often in the US, and, and it was a Russian initiative that used American expertise to implement. So this period of what's called shock therapy, and it was a shock, uh, is often um, attributed to uh, Americans, particularly to Harvard and its uh, Harvard Institute of International Development and Jeffrey Sachs, uh, as if they convinced the Russians to do this. If you look at what the Russians were saying themselves, this was their program, they just needed help to get it done. So one of the first things that Yeltsin did was give every person who uh, lived in an apartment the right to privatize that apartment. So they, it was a pure bureaucratic procedure where they could get ownership of their own apartment. Whereas before, all they had was the right to live there. They did not own it. Then they set about privatizing businesses using this voucher privatization system that was imported uh, from Poland. It was used first in Poland. And Jeffrey Sachs and HIID brought this into uh, Russia and helped get it started getting set up. Uh, to privatize initially fifteen thousand uh, state enterprises and turn them into private industry, the Russian privatization agency then put out a contract to get um, assistance from financial institutions, and a a third generation Russian American uh, Boris Jordan, who had been had a career in the financial industry, convinced. Uh, Credit Suisse to bid for this uh, project for nothing, for to do it for free. And it was a masterstroke in that uh, Jordan and his team took the Harvard plan, redid it, gave it over to the Russian government in a way they could rapidly privatize. Uh, and in the process, Jordan got to know every important person in the the former Soviet Union, and later was the founder of a highly successful uh, investment bank and uh, Renaissance. So these were, and Jordan was a young guy. He called on young Americans and other foreigners to uh, assist him. They had an opportunity to make history uh, in a way that no one their age would have been allowed near to in the US or in Europe. Um so it, it is very interesting to um to to read his uh the pieces of his interview that I was able to include um as to how he was protected by Chubais encouraged by Chubais and the uh effort they put in to assist in this transformation which was the heart of the change of from the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union?
1: How would you describe, you know, the mood? Because you know, in, in nineteen ninety-eight there would be there would be a financial crisis. So leading up to ninety-eight, what was the, What was the mood like from the dissolution of the Soviet Union until then? Oh, the mood!
0: Wow, that uh, depends on who you are. Um, for most of uh, the Russian population, it was disorientation and confusion. Um, And a huge decline in their economy immediately after this period. I mean, it was like the Great Depression. And uh, I have to say for uh, educated, um, mostly urban, but educated Russians, it was a chance for individual opportunity. And many of them grabbed that opportunity. Um, And for many of us, foreigners, it was also opportunity. And we uh we sort of strode through the land thinking we were um capable of anything. And I and I think we uh to a certain extent ignored the sort of poverty that was all around us. I mean I remember in those days walking to the metro and on the steps of the metro would be old people with some towel or a rag on the step and they would be selling a light bulb or a few spoon silver spoons or a piece of jewelry or later some uh uh clothing that had been imported from turkey was a fairly low quality but cheap. I mean they were desperate. Um and we we didn't see them. We saw this as a historical period that we could remake uh Russia, it would be a new Russia, it would be forever uh, integrated into the rest of the world and part of the world economy. And uh, so, you know, mood really depended on who you were um, in those in those years. And it was also a time in which there was a lot of um, craziness and, and lawlessness, if you will. Um, they, nobody knew what the rules were. There were remnants of the Soviet state raw, raw, Soviet bureaucracy, but there were also just all kinds of informal arrangements and business deals that got done. The One of the first things that Yeltsin did was to uh, split up the functions of the KGB into a number of different police agencies, which led to... A decline in law enforcement, and it was part of the whole period in which it was kind. Of, Russia was the wild east because of the lack of any kind of authority, um, and and so there were opportunities depending on who you knew, um, and 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 what you were able to manage to get done by through connections or force of will
1: and then you know in 1998 you have the financial crisis so i was wondering if you could just discuss a little bit about this crisis uh and and then just its more specifically its impact on the american expat community in russia
0: yeah so first of all the the expat community in russia grew dramatically in this period so um their first their year it's in, in composed of lots of different component part so there were international um aid agencies that were setting up in in uh Moscow and St Petersburg bringing their staff to live there international multinational corporations were investigating the Russian market they were sending staff there and opening offices Uh, uh, there were um universities and private foundations that were establishing themselves in the area. So, you had this and uh, there were entrepreneurs who said were looking for opportunity, there were adventurers, adventurers and con men. There were all kinds of crazy characters who were uh, foreigners who were gathered uh, in mo- mostly in Moscow and St. Petersburg and to a lesser extent in the Russian provinces. But they uh in the process developed their own um, institutions so there were english language newspapers there were gyms founded as i mentioned before uh by the mid 90s there was the american chamber of commerce in russia was formed uh there was a golf club there and a golf course country club that was uh, set up in moscow where foreigners gathered and then later russians gathered so Uh, And there were then the mushrooming um, financial institutions that uh, got set up as a result of privatization and stock trading and coupon trading. So there were a lot of people there created demand for um, restaurants, hotels, diners, uh, all kinds of uh, lifestyle that they were accustomed to in the West they created that demand the numbers for of how many people were there it's hard to it's hard to get a firm number before 1998 they anywhere from 50 thousand to two hundred thousand um were were um uh in in the in in the in Russia uh, and then 1998, uh, was there was a financial crisis uh, in Russia, which was sparked by a worldwide financial crisis, which started in, in Asia and then spread to Russia. And Russia defaulted on uh, government uh, obligations that it had issued in the 1990s. And the feeling was this was the end. This was a collapse of this experiment of the market economy. And, um, many of the institutions collapsed under debt that they had incurred and the market for commercial r- real estate collapsed. M- many of the international, uh, multinational corporations started sending people home. They weren't sure what the future would be. And, um, and, and it, many of the, the people I interviewed, uh, particularly those in the financial, um, sector would talked about how they had going away parties, uh, almost every night. So they were sort of expats were going home cause the salad days were over. Uh, it was a horrible miscalculation. It was, things weren't over. Uh, there was a, there's a famous, um, uh, cover of the Atlantic from that period that's got Russian soldiers on the front. And it said, Russia is finished. And it was a miscalculation of what was going on, but it was a turning point in that uh, the foreigners who had supplied a lot of expertise uh, for the transition period in setting up new institutions uh, left. But their place was taken by Russians who had uh, been staff members in some of those same organizations, or who had gone abroad and studied in large numbers and came home, and who sort of took over this modernization process and took over the demand for real estate and pushed forward the economy, it was also... Uh, a period in which the oil prices began to rise and so Russia began to prosper again based on rising energy prices and but relying much less on expats and emigres in the country and they say it was a, it was a it was a poor miscalculation but would the expat community start to recover again or was this sort of the yeah it did it did recover i mean some of the people that uh uh, some of the people that I interviewed um, explained how they got through that period and, uh, and how they stayed. Um, uh, some people that I interviewed actually did leave and didn't go back. Um, the expat community then did continue to grow in the early 2000s, it, they, there was, but it was sort of different people. And by then, um, the opportunities were different. Um, and the shape of the uh, Russian economy was different um, by then. So um, the the influence of foreigners was less, and there was also a beginning kind of pushback against sort of what was seen as foreign tutelage back to uh, Brzezinski and his receivership notion. Um, at least by that period, you could say, I would characterize it by Russians saying, stop telling us how to live. There was that kind of a general feeling that, you know, we're smart, we've mastered some of these, these skills, we know how to run businesses, we don't need you. And for multinationals, they didn't need the expense of all the hazard pay that they were paying for uh, uh, foreigners to live in Moscow and uh, high expenses and so they ha- were started hiring Russian staff so it was a, in, in a way it was a reaction against the uh, kind of superiority complex that was exhibited towards Russians but it was also the beginning of the completion of a period of modernization in which the western expertise was needed less and less Um, as russians assimilated uh what lessons they were learning from participating with foreigners in building the stock exchanges and the investment banks and the uh, retail outlets and all of the modern um, sectors of the economy they didn't need americans anymore Um, and so it was a, it was a period of real nodal point in change by this period of time in like the mid, mid two thousands, do you think that, you know, it
1: could say, we could say pretty, you know, squarely that, that Russia's transition from planned economy to a market economy, you know, obviously many speed bumps along the way, but that it was successful that they had made the transition and that what they had did look like a market economy
0: or, you know, was there still some, the legacy of, of the Soviet union? Yeah, uh, well, there's always been a legacy of the Soviet Union. But, but you know, it's interesting. I've actually had some uh, people on the Facebook comment about the book, oh, no, it's not really a market economy. But I think they're missing the main point, that, um, that private property was firmly established, uh, that's never been revoked. The role of the state in... Um, in Russia is probably larger than it is in uh many western economies but not all but uh but they've not gone back to central planning they uh people still own their apartments they there's continual battles over ownership of commercial property and industrial property but it's not gone back to it being state property That it it, a lot of the economy is determined by uh, budget priorities and where the state spends money. But it's, um, it is a private economy and it's not the same as ours, but it is a private economy and it's pretty much institutionally established from that period of time. I'd love to hear, you know, what are some of the changes? That you've seen in
1: in in the economy, you know some some of the new new sectors that have that have been cropping up that that you find
0: find fascinating. Going back to the transition from the Soviet Union, there was uh, there were certain sectors of the economy that didn't exist. So you did not have a real estate sector in the Soviet Union. There was no private property in uh, apartments or commercial real estate. So a new real estate sector developed out of the Soviet uh, times and often with uh, U.S. assistance. Uh, And uh, many other uh, sectors of the economy were like that. So telecom, for instance. In Soviet times, it was rare to have a home phone. And there was a kind of an anecdote of Soviet uh, period, in which uh, a, a guy goes and uh, it purchases a car and cars were also in deficit. They couldn't get them. So he purchases the car and the salesman says, okay, purchase the car. We're going to deliver it in 10 years. And so the, the guy purchasing the car says, okay, is that going to be in the morning we're in the afternoon and he says what are you talking about it's 10 years from now how can it matter whether it's the morning or the afternoon and he says well I need to know because I'm having a telephone installed the same day and it was indicative of sort of the state of development but if you look by at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union right before that U S West began to bring cellular communications to the Soviet union and then to Russia and opened, uh, the first cellular company, Moscow cellular, and they jumped over the copper wire technology of fixed line telephones. And Russia became one of the most important mobile telephone markets in the world to the point where by 2021, Russia had 1.7 phones per person and the U.S had 1.1 so they were more heavily mobile phone users than we were in that in that period of dramatic change and enabling a totally different way of life uh, through um, telecommunications and that's just one. One example, um, the, uh, another interesting one to me was, um, the magazine and women's magazine, um, sector where, uh, in the mid nineties, the only women's magazines available were farm woman and, uh, and factory woman. And these were the only women's magazines available. Well, the Moscow Times uh, publisher was losing money on this news magazine, so he and his wife chased down Hearst, who published Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, and got them to agree to a joint venture to put out Cosmopolitan magazine in Russia. So in 1994, I believe, the first issue of Cosmopolitan came out, and eventually it grew into an 800 page magazine, of which 600 pages were ads. And it became the most uh, influential uh, magazine among Russian women on lifestyle, sexuality, self image, fashion, and it pulled along with it a whole number of other uh, changes. And this kind of modernization of mentality and physical things remains today. Um, that they, If you look at how Russians shop, they shop in malls, uh, just like people in the West do. They have food courts with pizza and burgers in them. In uh, the food courts, all a product of the changes in that period sectors that didn't exist uh and heavily influenced by foreigns foreigners and particularly americans in developing um those new sectors of the economy yeah that's that's really fascinating I, especially you know, the
1: the farm woman and factory woman it's almost <laughs> uh it's it's almost hard to believe um yeah <laughs> those are, yeah, the, those are yeah. The, the two magazines on offer um but it, but it's uh, you know extremely fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, in your experience uh, there, if there is anything that maybe you have since reconsidered over the course of doing these interviews that you've thought, oh wow, maybe the way that I was experienced at the time or what I thought about you know some aspect of Russian culture Russian society I've actually cha- that you've changed your opinion on was there any any kind of experience like that any any like wow like that really has made me reconsider rethink how i was approaching something you know something
0: uh i think it made me uh think back as to uh, my own um attitudes uh and what i paid attention to uh i think that uh i'm not proud of having ignored the poverty of people around me uh and to a certain extent my own uh sense of arrogance that i represented a higher culture uh that was bringing um bringing uh enlightenment to uh to russians and i think that was probably common among many uh, americans and i i think the people who lived there and stayed there that part wore off they began to appreciate the sophistication of Russian culture and the intelligence of and skills of uh Russian people that um the you know if you're back to where your question about stereotypes and you want the stereotypes of Russians are is that they're gangsters uh prostitutes or hackers and that's far from the truth in terms of um, uh, the actual experience that um, everyone who I interviewed had with people in the country. And But keeping in mind that people I interviewed are the ones who stayed, the ones who succeeded, the ones who felt comfortable there. There are many other Americans who never felt comfortable there, hated the country, hated the food, didn't like the culture, um, you know, would eat at my McDonald's every night if they could. Um, So I interviewed those people who um, found uh, harmony with that society. Not that they accepted everything, but they um, appreciated it and respected their counterparts. And not everyone did that and that lack of respect is uh, a negative aspect or a remnant of that period of time
1: yeah i i just want to you know draw attention to the uh the note that you just include at the beginning of the book which i i found uh you know i really strongly agreed with you just say this book is dedicated to a future time when americans and russians can once again mingle freely work jointly respectfully exchange views and learn from each other um and and I think you know that's so much of a lot of what you've also just been saying across this interview is just there is there is this potential that we we shouldn't lose sight of especially in the wake of of what's gone on in the past couple of years. And it's truly it's really a tragedy that that the world has taken this turn. Um, but hopefully, you know, again, just like how nobody foresaw, uh, as you said, nobody really foresaw the end of the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, you know, we will see an end to this conflict and one that doesn't end
0: in uh, you know, nuclear, uh, Armageddon. Right, right. Well, that's what we all hope for. And, and I also, uh, want to make sure that every, the listeners understand that by saying the things, I am in no way condoning, uh, or defending the, uh, invasion of Ukraine, that, that it was a, a political choice, um, that I, um, That I uh, strongly reject, and there was no way that by saying that we need to understand Russia, we need to look deeper, does not defend what uh, the leadership of the country has done in Ukraine. So I want to be clear about that. No, that's absolutely. You know,
1: I think it's very clear that you're you're not a, uh, you're you're not you're no, you're no no sense of, sense of the term and a, an apologist of any sort. You're but but you know really pushing for, you know, it's still this having this understanding is still really important. It's really you know important that that we understand uh, you know different people and what their, you know, what their lived experiences are and and you know why people in Russia might feel. The way that they do right uh, it's still right. really important to get to know to get at that and the history this history is really is really key uh and it, it would be i think better you know american uh, american political discourse would
0: be better if people understood this yeah um, i I agree with you and the the other thing maybe i think we're probably getting to the end of this but i i, I do want to say that you know i had an experience there a personal experience which which sort of indicates some of what you were saying to me it drove it home. Um, in the mid nineties, I, um, was taken by a Russian friend to, uh, a city called Uglitch, which is in on the Volga river, north of the city of Yaroslavl. Well, Uglitch is pretty much a small city. Uh, but it had at the time the largest watch factory in the Soviet Union. And Uglitch is also, it was, um, the spot where um ivan the terrible's last son was murdered and so it has historical significance it was also the homeland of the stalichna uh the I'm, I'm sorry not the stalichna the um uh, the um uh vodka uh, smirnoff family um and so it has these historical significance in any event we're riding into the city to meet with this factory director and it has the name of the city and the founding date of 937. And I always was struck by that. And I said to myself, 937, I, what has this uh, town seen and survived in over a thousand years? And it's persevered. And it's still here in some form. And so no matter what, Uh, we know Russia is not going away. It's going to persevere in some form, and it would be a huge mistake to reduce it to a caricature, reduce it to simply a reflection of one man. It is a much more complicated picture than that, and one that's worth understanding because it Russia is not going to go away, and we have misunderstood and underestimated uh, Russia consistently over long periods of time. So, yeah, there's no, so something
1: I I think about too is that the, you know there's a period of time in Russia where they thought there would never be great Russian literature. That you know, if, <laughs> if you were an educated Russian person, then you should be learn. You should write in French. You should right, learn French. Right. Right. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, the 19th century is just filled with you know. Some of the greatest books ever produced, and you know, I've absolutely, you know, some of my favorite books of all time are, you know, of of that, uh, you know, Dostoevsky and and uh, and uh, Lermontov and and Gogol, and it's just, you know, you never know where things are going to head, and that's always important important to remember. That's right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being guest on the New Books Network. The book is creating the post Soviet Russian market economy through American eyes. Uh, It was great to have you on.
0: Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I, I hope everyone uh, will enjoy the book and learn from it. And it will hopefully will lead to other people to doing additional research of this in this period, which I really do hope. Thank you.